Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. How did one of history's greatest writers, Ernest Hemingway, get going with his craft, develop his indelible style, and infuse his narratives with memorable life and compelling tension? Today, we delve into the answers to those questions with Hemingway scholar Mark Torino, who is a professor of English, the editor and author of half a dozen books on Hemingway, including Ernest Hemingway Thought in Action, and the host of The One True Podcast, which covers all things related to Papa. Mark and I begin our conversation with how Hemingway cut his teeth with writing as a journalist, how the iceberg theory underlay his approach to writing as a novelist, and how his years in Paris and the books, people, and art he encountered there influenced his work and the trajectory of his career. We then discuss how his travel and recreational pastimes allowed him to write with a vivid firsthand understanding of certain places and pursuits, what his writing routine was like, and how the characters in his novels explore the tension between thought and action. We in our conversation with Mark's recommendation for where to start reading Hemingway, if you've never read him or haven't read him in a long time, and what Mark thinks was Hemingway's one true sentence. After the show's over, check out our show notes at awm.is slash Hemingway. Mark joins you now via clearcast.io. Mark Torino, welcome to the show. Thanks, Brett. You're an English professor, and you've made Ernest Hemingway the focus of your career. You have a podcast called One True Podcast, where you discuss Ernest Hemingway. You're the editor of several journals about Hemingway. You've written a book, Hemingway Thought in Action. You also got a new book coming out, One True Sentence, all about Hemingway. So you're the Hemingway guy. How'd that happen? How did you make Hemingway a career for yourself? Yeah, it, Brett, it, it really snowballed. I think probably my origin point with Hemingway, I grew up in a house full of readers. My father was a journalist. My mother was a writer. So my mother was always reading books. My dad was always, was always reading newspapers. So I just gradually read through the bookshelves. The bookshelves were always full. And then when I was about 20 or 21, I got to Hemingway and I just it, he just really grabbed me, the language, the clarity of his language, his subject matter. So yes, I read all his novels, I read his short stories, and I just was hooked. I was hooked. So yeah, Hemingway is a huge part of my teaching and my research, uh, without a doubt. Yeah, I think Hemingway, like if you grew up, like my parents had copies of him. They had like, like you know, these old hardbound books of all of Hemingway's stuff, Fitzgerald's stuff. And yeah, I was kind of like you, when I got into high school, I somehow, like, I was bored, and we didn't have Fortnite back then, so <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, I'll read for Whom the Bell Tolls, and it was great. Yeah, and, you know, so I think I probably started with The Sun Also Rises, just because it was probably shorter than For Whom the Bell Tolls, and looking back, I can't imagine I understood what I was reading, because it's 
it, it, some of the stuff in Hemingway is not apparent on the surface. I don't know if Brett, if you felt the same way I did, but you, there was something about the atmosphere, like the way the characters spoke that it just, I loved being in that world, even though I wasn't a hundred percent sure what was going on. No, I felt the same way too. Sometimes you have to read it a couple of times to, for it to sink in. No doubt. Yeah. No doubt. So what I like to do with this episode is talk about Hemingway's life in general, but also his work and his influence. Because Hemingway is one of those, he's one of those virile writers, right? He, he did manly things, bullfights, mm-hmm. hunted, went to war, and then he wrote about those things. Let's talk about how did Hemingway find his way into writing? Was, you know, could you see when he was a kid growing up in you know, Illinois, outside of Chicago, that he was going to be a writer? You really could, actually. His mother was into the arts, was a music teacher. In addition to being a doctor, his father was a naturalist, you know, a hunter, and extremely knowledgeable about all things nature. Hemingway also had his ancestors were in the Civil War. And so all of the elements that would come to define Hemingway were, were there really early on. It's really funny to look at Hemingway's high school prophecy. And he said, I want to travel and write. And I, I don't know if any of your listeners, when you were a senior in high school, could nail your future so perfectly. I want to travel and write. Well, what better definition of Hemingway than those two activities? Because those are the two things that would come to be his trademark. No, yeah. And one thing too, if I, I read, you know, preparing for this podcast, I read uh, Carlos Baker's seminal mm. biography. And one thing sure. it talked about Hemingway when he was a kid, like he loved to tell stories. And like some of the, like when he would tell people like what happened, like something, an experience that he had, he would embellish it. Like, and he would sort of, he was kind of cutting his teeth and kind of creating, he was creating himself into a storyteller. Yeah, that never changed. In fact, much to his own detriment, even when Hemingway did impressive things like go to World War I as a Red Cross volunteer, as an ambulance driver in World War I on the Italian front. When he came back, he would embellish it. And if you look at his letters, they're filled with a lot of fiction. And so sometimes the fiction and the nonfiction blur. And so you're saying like Hemingway's greatest fictional character that he ever created was himself. That, that kind of blustering Papa Hemingway figure that to some people might be unattractive because there's something inauthentic about it. You know, I, I know that you said he, you know, he did virile things and manly things. And depending on how you define those things, what, it, what does it mean to be manly? What does it mean to be virile? I know those are chief concerns of your podcast. Is it also virile or manly to then inflate those things or mm-hmm. to boast about them? Or is it better to be understated? And so these are things that at various stages of Hemingway's life are intention. And you're reading the Baker biography, which makes his life story so extremely interesting. And then, and then also can be a little bit sad that whatever he did, however impressive it was, somehow was never enough. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I got, I got that sense that he was always trying to grasp for something more. And you know, it's interesting too with the being a braggadocio. If you look at different times in the history of masculinity, there's been periods where being a braggart was seen as a virtue and it was celebrated. At other times, it was criticized. And you know, so maybe, maybe that's why people often have con- conflicted feelings about Hemingway. 
let's talk about, you know, how did he, he, he did some writing when he was in high school. He wrote some short stories um, that got, you know, his teacher's like, this is really good. He ends sure. up eventually working as a journalist at the Kansas City Star. How did that experience influence his writing style that we'd see throughout the rest of his career? Right. So I think, I think it, it was, was huge. It was an enormous impact. The, the writing that he did for the Kansas City Star and then also the Toronto Star as a correspondent. So first of all, stylistically, being a journalist taught him how to do more with less. In other words, get to the point, be clear, be declarative. These are traits that would come to define Hemingway's writing style. Even though it may not encompass it totally, it is certainly part of his early style, is that Hemingway was direct and clear. This is one of the things that can be so refreshing to read a Hemingway novel or a Hemingway short story as opposed to like Henry James, right? It's that journalistic clarity, the objective fact that will then convey the emotion to the reader without actually saying it. So that was certainly a big part of it. I would also say that in Kansas City, he was covering characters. So in other words, he would cover crime stories. He would be out on the streets. He would learn, he would maybe see a side of life that he hadn't seen in Oak Park before. So he was, he was sort of accumulating characters and experiences. I think those were those were extraordinarily important. And then as we get a little bit later, when he is a foreign correspondent, when he's in Europe writing for the Toronto Star, he is then reporting on wars, like in Smyrna, 1922, and the peace conference in Lausanne. So he's traveling around the world. He's meeting, you know, Mussolini and D'Annunzio and all, all of these characters. So on the one hand, as you were suggesting, it's certainly made a huge difference with respect to style, but also the experience, which later emerged in his writing. Right. And I think if anyone has read a Hemingway novel, they'll notice that sort of just short declarative sentences, right? It's just, there's no, he doesn't waste anything with like lots of commas and semicolons. It's just Bob, Bob, Bob. And it, and like you think it'd get monotonous, but it doesn't. It seems really fresh and punchy. And it also can convey a lot of emotion. And I think that's just part of that. Something he was able to hone throughout his career. Yeah. At, at his best, Brett, he certainly does what you're describing. Uh, his early short stories, Big Two-Hearted River, for instance, Soldier's Home. He'll write exactly as you're describing it. And somehow the reader will get more. However, he didn't, you can't say that that style maintained consistently throughout his career. It, um, it's really prominent in the 20s. One sort of technique that he developed to, mm-hmm. as you say, when Hemingway writes something, you read it and you're like, well, there's more going on here. And Hemingway is actually, that was intentional by Hemingway. He had this thing he called the iceberg theory. What is the iceberg theory that Hemingway developed? Oh, yeah. Well, the iceberg theory is is really crucial to understanding Hemingway, uh, as, you, as you said. It, it's probably the most important aesthetic statement he ever made about his own work. And so in, in 1932, in, in his bullfighting treatise called Death in the Afternoon, it's mostly about bullfighting, but occasionally he does also talk about art. And he says in that book, he says, if a writer of prose knows enough about what he is writing about, he may omit things that he knows, and the reader 
if the writer is writing truly enough, will have a feeling of those things as strongly as though the writer had stated them. Now, think about that. Actually, we can go beyond Hemingway and even beyond literature and just think about that as an artistic statement where when is it better for an artist to withhold information, to withhold facts, to withhold any kind of expression in the hope that the reader or the audience will supply the rest. So in other words, if you use understatement, what you're essentially doing is forming a collaboration with the reader. Say, I'll give the reader, I'll give the reader half, and then I think the reader will come the rest of the way. Let me just give you one example that I think might clarify what he's talking about. A lot of Hemingway's characters are soldiers or veterans. Well, Brett, I know you have a lot of soldiers and veterans on your program. How do they usually talk about the war? Are they usually effusive and forthcoming? And you tell me about the war. Oh, good. I'm glad you asked. And then they go on for 45 minutes. No. The, the ones that I've ever met are usually laconic and they're, they, they answer in kind of objective, ironic, sort of terse statements because it's not pleasant to think about. It's not... It's, it's like the emotion of the story is too valuable. So, it, in fact, it adds to the value by understating. Does that make sense? No, that makes Does sense. That no, that makes sense. And there's a, in Thought and Action, your book you wrote about Hemingway, mm-hmm. you gave a few examples yeah. of that where you had, I think there were short stories that Hemingway wrote, where you had soldiers, they were obviously veterans going off into the wilderness mm-hmm. to kind of get away from it yeah. all. But in the short story, Hemingway never says that they were veterans. I mean, it was sort of implied, like he never made it explicit though. Yeah, that's exactly right. So I think the the best example of that that you're bringing up is a short story called Big Two-Hearted River, which is an early short story that was published in 1925 in our time in that collection of short stories. And as Hemingway would later describe that story, he said it was a, it was it was a story about the war with no mention of the war. So the boy, Nick Adams, goes on a camping trip to kind of recuperate from the trauma of World War I. And so what ends up happening is we we learn about the camping and the fishing and making dinner in excruciating. And when I say excruciating, it's wonderful. It's not, it's it's just that he it's painstaking detail. He tells us everything about the camp, but what he doesn't tell us is why he's there. So in other words, he, Nick Adams, the character, is trying to banish the war from his mind in the same way that Hemingway has banished the word war from the story itself, or at least from the text of the story. A, a second example of that that perhaps your listeners would, have, would be familiar with is Hills Like White Elephants from 1927, which is a story about a man and a woman in Spain arguing about whether she should get an abortion. And again, the word abortion is not brought up. So the reader really has to bring his or her own interpretive powers, creativity, own experience into the act of reading. And and like you said, that's kind of, that's, that replicates life. A lot of times people do things and there's a reason for it, but they don't talk about it. You know, it's as simple as if someone says, how was your day? And you say, 
oh, well, I'm glad you asked. So the alarm clock went off in the morning and, you know, don't you hate when alarm clock, they start, they give you every single thing. Or you say like, how was your day? How was work? Ah, don't talk to me about work. Uh, work's work. Or if, they, if, you know, if they say something, all right, well, that's not really giving me much, but you know what I can infer? I can infer that the meeting didn't go well. It was a rough day. You got yelled at. You know, there was tension going on. So I can, I have to participate. If somebody tells me every detail from the alarm clock to how the coffee tasted to the commute, I have no role in the anecdote or in the communication. And so I think you can see that it's very risky to write in this way because you're depending on the energy of the reader. And, you know, I, I would even liken this to movies. If you, if you look at the way actors used to act in the, you know, films from the 1930s, all of their expressions and gestures are operatic, you know, it's like over the top. And now if, you know, if someone has just gotten some terrible news, sometimes an actor won't even react. Uh, I'll just move his eyes or, or something. I'll be on a close-up. And you have to say as, as an audience member, like, well, how would I feel if I were in that position, if I got that news? And there's something a lot more intimate, something a lot more inclusive about this technique. Okay, so the iceberg theory, that can help a lot of people who have read Hemingway. They're like, I don't know what's going on here. Like, yeah. understand that he, he's, saying, he's left a lot of stuff unsaid, and that's yeah. part of the process, and you got to kind of fill in the blanks. Well, yeah. And Brett, let me just say, it's called the iceberg theory, obviously, because one-eighth of an iceberg is visible, and the bottom seven-eighth is submerged. And so, you know, he's like, I, when I was a kid, I was like, well, why did the Titanic, why didn't they just steer around the iceberg? Well, it's like, okay, I didn't realize it was a mountain underneath the water, you know? And so think about if in all of human communication, the vast majority of what is communicated, what is expressed is not the words, it's gesture, it's unspoken emotion, it's suggestion, it's things that are implicit. And so perhaps this is literature that Hemingway is aiming for that replicates that realism of human expression. Okay. So when Hemingway is a young man, he goes off to Italy, joins the Red Cross as an ambulance driver, mm-hmm. gets his leg blown up and he comes back, but then he, he goes back to Europe. And this is like the part, like I always, I'm always like dumbfounded by this, this part of Hemingway's career because he goes back to, he moves to Paris in his early twenties and he joins these cool authors. Like these are like the leading, you know, modernist yes. intellectual writers. And he just shows up and they're like, okay, this journalist from uh, Oak Park, Illinois, you can hang yeah. out with us. I'm always like, every time I read that, I'm like, how did that happen? It'd be like, you know, someone, just some kid going up to Cormac McCarthy. Hey, Cormac, can I just hang out with you? <laughs> and he's like, yeah, I don't think that would happen. So why did Hemingway decide to move to Paris? And how did he get in with, you know, like Gertrude Stein? And like, I mean, James, he hung out with James Joyce. Like, well, how did that happen? Yeah, I find that astounding as well. So the story is that he originally, he and his first wife, Hadley, had intended to move to Italy. And Sherwood Anderson, author of Winesburg, Ohio, a writer who is one generation older than than he is, actually suggested Paris and also said that he would write letters of introduction to him, to various established writers who are around Paris. And 
He did. He just switched and he went to Paris. And, you know, if he had gone to Rome instead of Paris, I'm not even overstating this. I think 20th century literature would have been totally different. It really changed. And I think, as you're saying, I I look at his life and even more astounding than his writing ability, his vision for his own art. What is really astounding is the gusto with which he networked, how he hit the ground, and he was so determined to be a success. And you're, you're absolutely right. He's hanging around with Fitzgerald, Joyce, Gertrude Stein. I think it was very important that he went to the bookstore, Shakespeare and Company, the English language bookstore uh, owned by Sylvia Beach, which was like a hotbed for expatriates, and the sort of literati around around Paris. But yeah, Hemingway, as much of a gift for writing as he had, he really had a gift for self-promotion. Well, going back to the you idea, know, he's, he's like, the greatest story Hemingway ever told was this Hemingway. That was the greatest story. He was creating that. Yeah, that, that's right. Yeah, he saw where he wanted to go and was absolutely single, mon- he was, you know, monomaniacal. F. Scott Fitzgerald, who had just published The Great Gatsby, became his great advocate. And he Fitzgerald convinced Scribner, you know, the leading literary house, to publish The Sun Also Rises, Sight Unseen. And I mean, as you're saying in your question, Brett, like imagine any other guy in his mid-20s showing up to Paris and having that kind of heavyweight support it's just so improbable. It wouldn't have happened in Italy, but it certainly did happen in Paris. He found himself right where he needed to, right where he needed to be. Well, besides the networking and the contacts that he developed there, did his time in Paris that it, that did that influence his writing at all? Like, did you know Gertrude Stein say you need to do this with your writing kid mm-hmm. to make to get better? Yes, without a doubt, in at least two ways. The first way was he was exposed to art. And I mean visual art. So Hemingway was always, he was never ignorant of art because of his, his mother was cultured and, you know, he lived right outside Chicago. But when Hemingway talks about influence in that time, I mean, you should read, I'm sure you have, A Movable Feast, his memoirs. He talks as much about the painters as he does about writers. So he was influenced by visual art too. And of course, Paris would have been the ideal place for that. Also, secondly, Hemingway didn't have a college education. I mean, he did well in high school, but his college was, you know, going to Italy in World War I and bouncing around as as a journalist. So what he really did was he read omnivorously. He read the people that his mentors told him to read. And those were really Russian writers, French writers. So things that he really would not have been exposed to you know, hanging around in Oak Park, but he became much more cosmopolitan. And those were the types of books that really influenced his great work of the 1920s. Well, what are some of those like Russian authors, like Dostoevsky? Like who was he? Who was he reading? Yes, Dostoevsky, Turgenev, Tolstoy. When Jake Barnes in The Sun Also Rises is reading a book in Pamplona before he goes to sleep, 
He's reading Turgenev's sportsman sketches. So you can think of it, he's like shouts out to Turgenev in the middle of the Sonos Arises, basically, you know, tipping his cat. Thanks for the insp- thanks for the inspiration. Yes, he read, uh, but he also read Flaubert, Stendhal. It was like a college education. It was just on his own. Uh, it's really interesting. The Shakespeare and Company has the their their lending cards available, and so you can really see literally what he and his wife checked out in the twenties, and it's a lot of. It's amazing that most they're mostly European writers as opposed to keeping up on the American literary scene. And I think you also mentioned in Thought and Action, like he also read Freud, like he started reading all that stuff too. And you could see that influence in yeah. his in his works. He did. And I think he read my, if, if I'm thinking about what Freud might've meant to Hemingway, my suspicion is that, you know, did Hemingway actually read the interpretation of dreams? I doubt it. But I think being in Paris, being an intellectual, being alert to, you know, hanging around smart people in the 1920s, I think he would have been aware about modern psychology, William James and Freud and Bergson and so forth, even if he didn't kick back and read Freud on a rainy Sunday. You know, we might also add, Brett, that Freud said that the human brain was like an iceberg. Mm. So seven eighths of what's going on in our mind, we're not even aware of. It's the subconscious as opposed to the one eighth that we're actually conscious of. So anyway, more beneath the surface than, than above the surface. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. Wedding season is coming up. And if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a long-time podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. If you're like my family, we're getting to the busy part of the year. Spring sports are happening, a lot of after-school activities. So sometimes planning and cooking dinner, just don't have time for that. That's where Factor Meals comes in. With Factor, you get fresh, never-frozen meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. With Factor, you get restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. No prepping, no cooking, no cleanup needed. It's also less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian-approved to be nutritious and delicious. So we've been using Factory Meals in the K household for a while now. There's a lot of reasons why we like them. First off, the food tastes great. Last week, I had creamy pesto pork chop with spinach, cauliflower, rice, roasted green beans. Tasted fantastic. But the big selling point, it's easy. There's no cooking. There's no cleaning up. It's great for those nights when you're busy and you don't have much time uh, to 
to take care of dinner and you don't want to do takeout because you feel gross after takeout. If you'd like to try Factor Meals, head to factormeals.com slash manliness50 and use code manliness50 to get 50% off. That's code manliness50 at factormeals.com slash manliness50 to get 50% off. Check it out today and make sure to check out the creamy pesto pork chop. It's really good. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. And now back to the show. So it's something about Hemingway, he was extremely competitive and he's also very critical of other writers. Like right. in, you know, in, in Paris, he called everyone phonies. Like, ah, these are just a phony, <laughs> as a poser. But were there any writers that he could openly admit to admiring? Well, I mean, do you know those people who like they can't give you a compliment without a qualification yes. or an exception? The back, the backhanded compliment you get. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It's like, there's like, oh, you know, if you did this, you'd be good. Or, hey, when you do this, you're good. Or this one time you were good. And, and so if you, it's, it's actually a a really fun game. If you can go through Hemingway and try to find unqualified compliments, especially to other writers. And they're so rare. It's actually an aspect of Hemingway's personality. I find incredibly unattractive just how ungenerous he is to other writers. Now, you asked if there were writers to whom he was completely complimentary. Only a couple come to mind. I think James Joyce, although I can think of things that he criticized about Joyce, but he really did revere Joyce and Shakespeare. However, he said like about Joyce, in, and I know we're, at, we're speaking in the 100th anniversary of Ulysses, he would say, oh, and Joyce, Bloom is great, but Stephen Dedalus is not that great. So one of the characters was great. The other character was not that great. Molly was great. 
Stephen was not that great. And you're like, are you kidding me? You know, to, to be so, to be critical of Ulysses, the, you know, the greatest English language novel of the, of the 20th century, even writers like Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, Turgenev, who we were, were talking about, Fitzgerald, Stein, Sherwood Anderson, who actually gave him his big break in Paris. Hemingway was critical of everybody. <laughs> he, he could, he could compliment, he could compliment them occasionally, but he was very, sparing with that. A great example of this also, just to conclude here, would be Mark Twain. So everybody remembers that he said, all modern American literature begins with Huckleberry Finn. You think like, wow, can you have a better compliment than that? Well, keep reading the quote because the quote continues. It goes, however, if you read it, you have to stop when the boys meet back up with Jim, right? And like, so in other words, the last quarter of the book is faking. So even this great compliment, what some people say is like the most, you know, the most colossal compliment in literary criticism, it's only a half compliment. And I find that really sad. Even when, when Hemingway reached the status that nobody could ever, you know, Pulitzer, Nobel, he was still, he was still pretty catty. Well, yeah. Like what, what do you think drove that? I mean, it's kind of petty. Like, what do you think drove that? What was behind that? Do you, do you have any, I mean, this, again, you're just psychoanalyzing here. Um, of course. Insecurity. I mean, I would say that when I, that for the same reason, if, you know, you and I were hanging out with somebody who was acting like that, I would say it's insecurity. So, you know, we talked about earlier that Hemingway, he led a very active life. He hunted, mm-hmm. he fished, he traveled. He was a, an aficionado of bullfighting. How did all that stuff impact his writing? Well, you can't even separate it. It was a symbiotic relationship where he did all of those activities to feed into the writing. And in writing, he sort of explored the magic behind all of those activities. So with Hemingway, you can't really imagine one without the other. Uh, You know, we started this conversation by talking about Hemingway's childhood when he was really exposed to fishing and hunting he went to war as an extremely young man, right? He was 18 years old when he was blown up in Italy. So all of these pursuits were really part of him. They were just baked into who he was. And so that when he was writing about them, they were very natural. And like, for instance, you know, bullfighting is a great example. I've never seen a bullfight, uh, never attended the bullfights. I really don't, to be honest, don't really have much interest in doing it. However, what Hemingway wanted to do, he didn't just want to write, it's like, oh, let's set a novel at the bullfights. He wanted to find that kind of magic or glory or something that was, that only somebody who truly understood the bullfights could impart. So that when you read The Sun Also Rises, even if you're not you know, a particular fan of bullfights, you need to know that he loved the bullfights and that he understood the bullfights and his characters did. And so to me, that's good enough. You know what I'm saying? It's like he under, he had a real insider's appreciation for all of these activities, even drinking, I might add. Well, he reminds me a lot of uh, Theodore Roosevelt. He's the same way. He was very exactly. active, but exactly. Roosevelt also turned his, his stuff that he did into writing. Like, you know, the reason, yeah, yeah he went hunting in Africa and he turned that into a, a book. Yeah, the, the great, the great uh, Hemingway biographer, uh, Michael Reynolds, he said that, I mean, he points out that like any other 
American boy born in 1899 or thereabouts, you know, Theodore Roosevelt would have been the icon that you would have looked up to. And so when Hemingway goes to Africa in the 30s and then again in the 50s, you know, that's all sort of under the spell of what Theodore Roosevelt, how he projected manhood. So one of the, you know, we, there's kind of this image again that Hemingway has, uh, and I think he perpetuated it. He kind of yep. spurred it on. Is this idea he's like this party animal, he's, mm-hmm. you know, living big, you know, drinking, et cetera. Did that carry over to his work or was he pretty regimented with his work? So I hesitate to make a blanket statement because I think during his life, his work habits changed. You're absolutely right. And when you say party animal, well, the European title for his first novel was Fiesta, right? For The Sun Also Rises was actually called Fiesta. So he's often seen as somebody who celebrates the, you know, the Festival of San Fermin and, and, and so forth. I think the best way to think about Hemingway is that he was disciplined for most of his life in that he would wake up really early and he would write. So he'd wake up early and maybe he would do some correspondence and then he would put in a morning's work. And that could be two, three, four hours. And then around lunchtime, the drinking would begin. And so he would be drinking. He would be, maybe he would go fishing or he'd go hunting. Uh, He'd see people. So that would really be, and, and so there was a discipline to the way that he approached alcohol for much of his life. It wasn't like he would be writing while he was drunk. But that's how much of his life was structured. Yeah, he took his writing really seriously. In fact, he called it the awful responsibility of writing. And I really like this quote from the, the Carlos Baker biography. He said that for Hemingway, nothing could match a writer's satisfaction in making a new piece of the world and knowing that it would stand forever. Writing was what he had come to earth to do. It was his true faith, his church, his politics, his command. So yeah, I mean, even if he had you know stayed up late the previous night or he was hungover, I mean, the guy still got up at five thirty or six uh, in the morning and got down to work. And like you said, you know, he kept his drinking till after work, but it was hard to maintain that lifestyle. And I, I mean, it did catch up with him and his health. And we also had some like serious injuries throughout his life that oh yeah probably affected. I mean, right. what, what like I mean, I, I, yeah, I was reading the biography. And it's like, man, this poor guy, like he. Fell on yep. his head like five times in a plane crash. Car so, accidents. Car accidents. Yep. I mean, he got blown up in Italy. So yeah, a lot of physical trauma that he experienced throughout his life. Yeah. And we would, you know, there's there's a a there's a book out called Hemingway's Brain that really makes the argument that by Andy Farah, who makes the argument that essentially Hemingway might have had CTE. You know, like the concussion malady that football players and boxers have. Yeah, I mean, he got his head knocked around every, every, you know, uh, frequently. He was also a boxer, and you know, he kept, you know, he would crack his head open on his boat, the Pilar. Yeah. So yeah, he was he was certainly accident prone. Yeah, and his CTE might also have contributed to some of his bad behavior as well as his suicide. So when Hemingway went about his work, he wrote. Like I know Jack London, another yeah. virile writer. As soon as he wrote, like he was done with it. He didn't want to look at it again. Was Hemingway like that, or did he like to read over and edit his own work? Yeah, so that's another excellent question that also depends on the 
era of Hemingway that we're talking about. It's a famous story that in A Farewell to Arms, he would literally read the entire book up until the point where he was writing and then continue that day's work. So imagine that, that you're literally rereading that book over and over and over again to get into the world of the book. And then you continue on whatever new writing you have that day. Now, I don't say he always did that. Hemingway also, it's, it's, I've, I've been very lucky that I've studied Hemingway's manuscripts a lot. So there's a lot of Hemingway archives are in Boston at the John F. Kennedy Library, which is like nirvana for a Hemingway scholar. You get to see essentially how the sausage was made, you know, and you, you get a really good sense of Hemingway as a craftsman where Hemingway would labor over syntax and word choice. And you could really see how he kind of whittled his sentence down until it was at its most powerful. However, later in life, like a novel that I've spent a lot of time with is called Across the River and Into the Trees, which was published in 1950. And he was a much less careful editor in that book. He seemed like he was almost in love with his own voice and his character's voice, and he would just let them ramble on. And he didn't pare that down the way he might have 25 years earlier. Well, I think there was one point in his career when I think he was more meticulous. Like he really took both yes. the craftsman approach and then he also, but he believed in like the, the artistic, like the muses, like sometimes you just get hit with something and it just comes out of you, but he was able to synthesize the two sort of approaches. Yeah, I think that's a good point. He, you know, there's a famous statement that he made about Fitzgerald in his memoir, A Movable Feast, where he says Fitzgerald had the talent that was as natural as the pattern that dust makes on a, a butterfly's wing. But then once Fitzgerald became conscious of it, he, you know, he, he spoiled it and then he couldn't, he couldn't fly anymore. And so in other words, like Fitzgerald was this sort of preternaturally talented precocious guy who couldn't, didn't have the discipline to foster his own talent, to kind of take care of it. Whereas Hemingway sort of like worked for every word. It was like a bricklayer that he would just lay down the words. And so like Hemingway was blue collar, sort of a craftsman, while Fitzgerald was like an artist. Yeah. And I think that that dichotomy is a little bit too easy. It really, it really, I mean, if you look at the manuscript of The Great Gatsby, no, Fitzgerald yeah. labored. Yeah. Oh, he worked. He worked. He had to do the work. You right. know, just like nothing comes out of you that's the great that sounds like the great Gatsby just because you got lucky. But I think what is important about that is that that shows what Hemingway valued. And Hemingway loved the self-image that he was maybe not as talented as Fitzgerald, but through hard work and discipline and professionalism he became more successful than Fitzgerald. So one of the criticisms that's levied at Hemingway is that his characters are, you know, these like kind of one-dimensional, action-oriented he-men, right? Mm-hmm. Like, but you make this really compelling case in your book, Ernest Hemingway, Thought and Action, which, I, yeah, I really enjoyed this. Well, thank you. That if you read Hemingway closely, you actually discover that Hemingway's characters are actually very, extremely thoughtful and introspective. Yeah. How did Hemingway's books explore the tension and dynamic between, you know, introspection and action? Yeah, I, Brett, I think that really is is the crux of it, and and that's what I I explore in that book, Thought and Action. So 
really there is a cartoon image of Hemingway and, and maybe to some extent Hemingway is to blame for a lot of this. But if you look at his characters, his characters are, are intellectual. You know, they're either journalists or, you know, Frederick Henry in A Farewell to Arms wants to be an architect or they're writers or they're painters. You know, they're not, um, they're not really tradesmen or like blue collar workers. They're really not. So what Hemingway, I think what Hemingway's approach was, is to say, okay, men of action doing things that are active is not that interesting. Intellectual people who are busy, in thought, that's not that interesting. What's interesting is when somebody who is thoughtful is forced to act. And so if you are, how do intellectual, sensitive, vulnerable, introspective people behave at war or when they're hunting or when there's a crisis? How does the mind work under that kind of stress? So what do you do when thought is either not appropriate or it's not useful, or actually it's even injurious? It can detract from your behavior. One of my favorite statements about this is what when Hemingway's talking about, he says, the greatest gift for any soldier is the ability to suspend imagination. However, imagination is the most important trait for a writer. So go ahead. Now go try and figure out that contradiction. Like, so how do you how do you function if you have and if your brain is telling you, don't think about this, don't think about that, don't think about this, but that's the way your brain is structured. And I think that is where a lot of tension comes in Hemingway novels. I think all of us have experienced that where we, yes. where thought gets in the way. We like we're in a crisis, right? Or we're in right. this problem. Like actually thinking about the thing too much is going to prevent you from from succeeding. Yes, except that. And Hemingway said another thing. Hemingway said he said the reason very few good soldiers ever become good writers is because if during the battle you were thinking about the battle or let's say reacting to the battle or doing what you were told or functioning as a professional soldier, well, then you probably weren't able then to create the scene fictionally. And so he says of Shakespeare, the reason Shakespeare, he said Shakespeare writes like he was a soldier. He's like, Shakespeare's able, even though Shakespeare never went to the military, was not in the military, he writes like he did. And to, to Hemingway, you you know you can't offer higher praise than that. You know, uh, let me if I can just add one thing, Brett. Uh, Hemingway uh, around World War II edited a collection, an anthology called Men at War, where he essentially assembles his favorite war writing that uh, has ever been published. So, in other words, it'll be things from. It could be things from the Bible. It could be Stephen Crane's Red Badge of Courage, Stendhal, Tolstoy, et cetera, et cetera. And it's a really interesting window into Hemingway's reading and how he viewed this dichotomy of of thought and action. Did he ever solve the tension? Did he figure it out, do you think, between thought and action? Yeah. Uh, at his best, he, I, think, I think he did. At his best, he, he did. And so, in other words, to show how 
precious thought is. He would, what he would do would be like, I must not, I mean, if you read for, for, I think probably the best example of this, or at least the most striking example is, is for whom the bell tolls underline every time he says, I must not think about this. I must not think about that. I must, he's, he's coaching himself on what is going to be useful thinking and what is not useful, what is going to distract him. And so that's kind of, that's called uh, metacognition, which is to, when you have thoughts about your thoughts, uh, you're saying like, what would be useful to think about in this circumstance and what will end up getting me killed and getting my friends killed? So what's your favorite Hemingway novel and why is that? And then like also this, the follow-up question, like let's say someone's listening to this and they haven't read Hemingway since college Mm -hmm. or whatever, like what would you recommend to start up with and why? Yeah, so my terrible answer for my favorite Hemingway novel is always the novel I'm about to teach. Uh, okay. So I teach lots of Hemingway novels and on rotation, so I, I don't get bored of them. And it's like the next one I'm going to teach is The Sun Also Rises, so that's what I'm most excited to, to teach. What I would recommend to people who are, let's say, just getting into Hemingway is I, I would start with the short stories. So, you know, Hemingway published 49 uh, short stories, the first 49, and of which like 10 or 12 are fantastic. I would read The Killers, Hills Like White Elephants, Indian Camp, The Snows of Kilimanjaro, you know, any number of those great short stories. And then if you like them, you know, The Old Man in the Sea is only about 90 pages, and you could read that in a day or two. And then if you like that, you can go on to the, the longer novels like a Farewell to Arms, For Whom the Bell Tolls, The Sun Also Rises. What's your favorite, Brett? For Whom the Bell Tolls. Yeah, right. Yeah, I, that's a good one. I've read it a couple well, times. Well, that's a big one. You know, that's yeah. a, you have to admit, that's a, that would be a big one to, to bite off first. But it's, a, it's, a, it's like, I don't know, I, I didn't feel laborious to read. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's a, it was an enjoyable read. So you are the host of One True Podcast. And that takes, right. the, the show takes its name from a famous quote of Hemingway's where he said this. He said, all you have to do is write one true sentence. Write the truest sentence that you know. So you often ask your guests that you have on your show what they think was Hemingway's one true <laughs> sentence. So and I'm going to turn the tables on you. <laughs> what do you think was his one true sentence and why? So one true sentence really started because when I, when I teach Hemingway, I often start with one sentence as kind of an entrance into this broader topic that is Hemingway. So I can give you, I I can give you several one true sentences, but here I think is the one that I would, I would choose by way of context in 1922. So when Hemingway was a young man, still unpublished as a fiction writer, he was covering a, a conference in Switzerland as a journalist and his wife brought him all of his writing, his unpublished work in a suitcase in a Paris train station. That suitcase was stolen, which means that Hemingway lost a year or two of his writing. Now, this is, of course, in the days before flash drives and sending it to yourself on email and and so forth. So Hemingway, and you can picture Hemingway's first wife had to go tell Hemingway that all of his material had had been lost. So apparently Hemingway, as he tells it in A Movable Feast, he rushes back to Paris because he can't believe that all of his stuff is gone. And then here's the sentence. It was true, all right. And I remember what I did in the night after I let myself in the flat and found it was true. 
So he says, it was true all right, and I remember what I did in the night after I let myself in the flat and found it was true. And the reason to me that is a magnificent one true sentence is because it is probably the best encapsulation of the iceberg theory that I've ever seen in one sentence. Because what he tells you in that sentence is that, yes, it is true, and that he remembers what he did. But of course, he doesn't tell you what you really want to know, which is, what did you do? Did he tear up his, his apartment? Did he resolve to break up with his wife? Did he go out and get drunk? Did he do something violent? Did he do something he was ashamed of? And what are the range of things that he might have done as a reaction to losing all of his writing? And I love that in this sentence, all he is telling us that 30 years later, 35 years later, he remembers what he did. So that's a pretty good iceberg sentence, isn't it? That is a good one. You also got, you have a book coming out where you have people talk about yeah. their one, their favorite one true sentence. Yes. Yeah, so we have a book coming out July of 2022. This is it's called One True Sentence: Writers and Readers on Hemingway's Art. It's coming out from Godine, and yes, exactly. It's a collection of these types of interviews with our guests where we ask them the first question of every interview is what is your one true sentence and why? And then we take it from there. And so we have Elizabeth Strout, Sherman Alexie, A. Scott Berg, and on and on and on, Hemingway scholars and different people who have different experiences with Hemingway and they have different reasons for responding to some of these sentences. Uh, Ken Burns and Lynn Novick, wrote the introduction. So we're really excited about the book. And it's it's actually a nice way to kind of sample Hemingway for people who might be like, okay, well, what's your, what is your take on Hemingway? Uh, so we hope that this book does a good job of that. Well, Mark, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about your work? Well, we are on Twitter at one true pod. So the number one true pod and one true pod.com. So O N E true pod.com. And yeah, we hope you listen if uh, you're interested in Hemingway. Well, Mark Torino, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Brett, thanks so much for having me. My guest today was Mark Torino. He's the author and editor of several books on Ernest Hemingway, including Ernest Hemingway Thought in Action. He's also the host of the One True Podcast, available on all podcast players. Check that out if you want to go to a deep dive on Ernest Hemingway. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash Hemingway, where you find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanless.com where you find our podcast archives, well as thousands of articles written over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android and iOS, and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It helps out a lot. If you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay. Remind you on a list they went podcast, but put what you've heard into action.
Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.